Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. This uh, this is turning out to be a, a feedback winter campaign at uh, Expanding Mind. I'm uh, asking folks to, if you like the show, if you don't really like it, it's probably not really worth it for either of us. But if you like the show, you know, consider uh, leaving a message somewhere. Maybe iTunes, if you use iTunes. Other places, if you use other places, let your pals know. Feel like we have a good show here, and nice to get it out there a little bit more as the great podcast quest is on. PRN also recently set up a voicemail line. You can call in and uh, leave a message. Uh, that line is eight six two eight hundred. 6805-862-800-6805. And we did get a message this week that was pretty cool. So um, I'm going to play it right here. It's an unnamed guest. So who knows? We don't know where or when. Sounds a little bit south. Like getting a little, getting kind of Georgia. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not so good at Southern voices. Maybe you can tell. But here we go. Hello. I'm hoping to leave a voicemail for PRN to tell a brief comment on why I love Eric Davis's show called Expanding Mind. I've been listening for a long time, and um, I just think that uh, his open-mindedness is very rare. Oh, it's very academic, and it's uh, very dry, and it's beautiful, because open-mindedness and to uh, sit with the mystery is not always such a sensational thing. And I listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of his opinions, and the opinions are fun, you know, make you laugh. And But this isn't with his show. I've been listening for many years, probably like five. I'm 25 years old, so it's just helped me to maintain an open mind. I'd like to think that that was, uh, you know, that kind of that kind of thing works. I like the open mind. It's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a really important stance. Always keep it, keep it open. Doesn't mean your brains fall out. Uh, but as soon as you start hardening on a position, it should uh, send some warning bells off. Um, I also wanted to let folks know that uh, I have a lot of events coming up, partly around my uh, book coming out in uh, May and June. Uh, but I also wanted to announce right now that um, I'm part of a really interesting conference that's going to be coming up um, in uh, June on uh, queer psychedelia. Queer Psychedelia up here in San Francisco, going to be uh, sponsored by the folks at uh, Shakruna, uh, and I'll be telling you more about that later on. But I'm really interested in that because it's always been um, fascinating to track the uh, very creative overlaps between queer subcultures, LGBT, especially in earlier years, and the kind of larger slash different stream of the counterculture that you mostly hear me uh, talking about. And that's, for example, is very much where uh, the uh, stuff in high weirdness is all about. And, uh, and so it's a really fascinating topic and I'm really happy that there's going to be a conference devoted to uh, the queer dimension of psychedelia, which is uh, important both historically and I think in terms of a contemporary vibe. I have to say that the most forward-looking, cutting-edge psychedelic parties that I've had the uh, good fortune to be able to attend are notable for their uh, gender play. 
and this is in contrast, I believe, to uh, most of the older zones, though of course not exclusively so. So I do think that there's something about whatever contemporary psychedelic culture is that is very much in alignment uh, with the increasing uh, focus on and creative engagement with uh, uh, gender identity, and that it's important, though, to navigate that by also knowing where we come from, which brings us to uh, today's guest. Uh, Heather Lukes teaches at Occidental College and is an old friend of mine, uh, a great uh, raconteur, and um, she has one of the many things that she's done has been involved in a, um, a project in what we call the digital humanities, which is the kind of thing that in, if you're a scholar, everybody's heard about it. If you're not a scholar, they're like, what does that mean? And it basically just means using digital tools to continue the, um, <laughs> you know, the work of the humanities, which itself is always in flux and in a bit of a crisis these days, at least institutionally. So this is one of the ways people are trying to refresh the, the stuff. And uh, Heather was involved with setting up the grit and glamour of queer LA subculture, uh, a, a website, an interactive uh, example of digital humanities using uh, students doing re research and uh, uh, developing archives and going through original archives and translating them. Uh, to the pixel screen. We'll talk about that uh, later on. Um, but uh, first, I'm just interested in uh, introducing Heather to the show. So Heather, welcome to Expanding Mind. Thank you so much, Eric. It's great to be here. So wait, what's, what does Occidental College look like? It's sort of like kind of gothic-y, right? No. Let me see. I don't remember the exact name of the architectural style, but it was. it looks like a miniature Huntington library. Uh, it's done by the same architect whose name is escaping me right now. People also compare it a little bit to a miniature Stanford. Uh, but, okay. Um, so the more Spanish-y. Spanish-y, Mediterranean. It's got, you know, colonnades and stuff like that. And you, once you've been here, you'll see it in every other TV show and movie. Clueless <laughs> shot here. It's because colleges are so big. Universities are so big in Southern California that it's one of the only colleges that fits on a camera screen. So, um, so we have a lot of shoots here, and once you've seen it, you'll recognize it. Yeah, cl sounds like a, a classic uh, Southern California. Um, I mean, you're a you're a you're a deep Angelino, a, ca a Californian to boot. And one of the things your, your, your project is about is about uh, Queer LA, which is something that's always really interested me, um, partly because of how central and important many of these scenes have been, not just to uh, queer identity and, and LGBT rights, but just larger cultural force. And at the same time, the way that it's a little it's obscured. It's something you kind of have to go looking for. It's not necessarily part of either the city's story of itself or even the queer nation's part uh, story about itself. And, and maybe we can start off with a question that is, that has always confused me and you can also illuminate the uh, listeners a bit on the, on the backstory is that, you know, one of the most signature events in American queer history is of course, Stonewall, Stonewall rights, New York city, uh, West Village, bam! You know, this is like the moment when when violence and repression were out in the open and really kick-started a kind of political identity, a sense that that it, there had to be power, power had to be crystallized against this sort of repressive force that had been operating, you know, at, uh, f you know, forever in American history. 
But earlier than that event, there was some kind of equally riotous event that occurs at the Black Cat in Silver Lake. And we never, we never really hear about that, if I think I got it right. Um, and why? What does that tell us about these spaces, about queer history, about L.A., New York? That, that's, that's my initial question. Well, this, yeah, this is the big mystery. It's the 50th anniversary of Stonewall this year. Uh, it's become part of the National Park Service, right? <laughs> and, but, and it's hard to even wrap our minds around, around why Stonewall has become such a commemorated site, considering that it was, um, you know, it was the it was the outcast of the outcast bar, you know, it was the place where the people of color and the drag queens and trans people went because the mainstream, so-called mainstream uh, gay bars wouldn't have them as customers. So um, it, I just want to pause and note how remarkable that is on its face. Um, and then we have things like you know, Harvey Milk and San Francisco and the Castro and this conception of the gay neighborhood or the gayberhood. Um, and yet so many of these milestone things, once we start to tell American LGBT plus history started in Los Angeles first. So you mentioned the Black Hat Riot, which happens um, six months before Stonewall does. It involved a New Year's party where the police decided to go and break things up as they routinely did. But there's, I guess, maybe something about, you know, what, what New Year's was to the Black Hat is perhaps what the death of Judy Garland was to Stonewall. Uh, it was a kind of enough is enough moment, um, but it's not that there hadn't been sort of street fights with the police before, it's that it immediately led to three days of protesting afterwards. So there are some very um, iconic pictures from, from Black Cat. Uh, and that's the big mystery. Why didn't this take off? Is it something about the dispersed nature of Los Angeles, that there were several kind of pockets of gay life and not just, you know, Greenwich Village as this centralized gayberhood on an island? Um, or was it a class thing? That's another question. Uh, a lot of uh, people were really, a lot of the middle class and upper class were really closeted. And this is a problem of Los Angeles public life in general, right? It's very domestic in a lot of ways. If you've got a pad, party there, right? Don't <laughs> go to a bar. So uh, to sort of make the kind of cohesion that had to happen to make a movement out of this is perhaps a larger question of why Los Angeles is such a kind of anomaly to people who study cities, right, in general. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking is it just it just reminds me it's like another route into this great problem of LA of like how you narrate it, how you how do you try to generalize about it? How does the city narrate itself because it's kind of constantly insisting on its dispersion, on its multiplicity, on these these pocket worlds, you know, and I'm I'm thinking again of uh uh, you know Raymond Chandler stories and and uh, the way Frederick Jameson talks about how one of the things that are, that are so amazing about uh, the Philip Marlowe books is is the way in which you move between spaces in Los Angeles and until I read that I just I, I hadn't really put it together that part of the pleasure there is not just following the whodunit which is actually often not that interesting but it's like oh wow I get to ride in the back seat 
And there's something that connects all these disparate worlds. There's some story, there's some underground, you know, uh, uh, underworld network that somehow brings all these different things together because it's so hard to figure out in any other way how to weave these stories together. So it makes the work of cultural history, of, of again, a city creating a narrative about itself, really, very, very challenging. Absolutely. And I think part of, so there's a geographic part of that. And then there's the mass cultural part of it. This is the home of Hollywood, which you know is actually a neighborhood <laughs> in addition to being this apparatus of the film industry and the entertainment industry. And, um, you know, of course, this is writ large in the movie, the documentary Los Angeles Plays Itself, which... Uh, many people forget, is actually named after a gay pornographic experimental film that came before it uh, that has a much more sanguine view of um, pleasure and entertainment as uh, an asset rather than an overshadowing aspect of the relationship of the film industry to Los Angeles. But just getting back to the Raymond Chandler thing you mentioned, I mean, there's so many great Hollywood movies that thematizes a film like Magnolia, which you realize is only called Magnolia because all of the different uh, parts of its ensemble story are off of Magnolia Boulevard in the valley, right? Or Shortcuts, for example. Um, it also has this sense of dipping in and out of these different micro scenes that are barely stitched together. And, you know, that's what's exciting. It's uncontainable in some sense. But if you're going to be trying to tell a clean queer history, uh, it makes sense to maybe do that when you have uh, a timeline that corresponds to a digestible geography, right? So, and it's not even Blackout. I mean, the Cooper Donuts riots, um, where John Retchie, famous um, queer author, was there in attendance as a hustler with a bunch of drag queens. It was a similar uprising downtown uh, back when, you know, the, back when downtown was a downtown before its most recent gentrification back into a downtown. Um, so it's, you know, that the thing that astounds me is that it's not even a competition between San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles, as evidenced by the first gay, what would come to be recognized as gay pride parades, was in Los Angeles, and it called itself Christopher Street West after the Stonewall Rebellion. So why can't it just like two years later not even remember its own riots, right? That it has to still defer to New York. And there's been a lot of scholarship written on uh, why it is that Stonewall took that place and became commemorable or commemorability as scholars like to call it. What was, what was the commemorability factor? Commemorability of factor. That's a, that's a new one. Well, we're, you know, we're talking about these, these spaces in LA and I know one of the areas of the, of the website of the of the queer LA subculture website has to do with uh, Silver Lake, which is you know has become a you know very significant now sort of a little bit played out, but for you know long many many decades of different communities moving in a queer neighborhood and then a hipster neighborhood and a lot of characters I know I've spent a lot of time in Silver Lake. It's a wonderful place. Um, and so I'm just probably just curious cause it's a community that I, that I know, uh, reasonably well. Um, and what, what's the tale there? Like that is, was that, how did that function as one of these, um, queer localities, uh, in, in Los Angeles? 
Well, again, this is a bit of a mystery. Uh, part of it, there's various accounts. Uh, one, thinking around the 60s and 70s, is that it defined itself initially as East Hollywood. Um, so an alternative to West Hollywood, which is an incorporated separate city from Los Angeles, but at that time was county land. And so it was under the jurisdiction of the Sheriff's Department rather than LAPD, which was, and the Sheriff's Department was apparently much more lax about these things. So a big queer scene started around there. Um, but the, and also rent control. Uh, in, in some of like the story of why this became a gay neighborhood, I mean, it follows to some extent the classic Richard Florida thesis of the creative canary. It plays in with the stereotype of um, the gay canary as the the uh, sort of <laughs> first wing first wing gentrifiers who buy old houses and fix them up, um, often displacing communities of color. Now in Silver Lake in the fifties, it was it was kind of a different story. It was, um, many of the neighborhoods here were covenant neighborhoods. So people of color were uh, prohibited from owning houses here. So it was kind of an old white neighborhood that just aged out and retired and left a lot of great architecture um, where a lot of gay men move in in that case um, and lesbians to some extent. Uh, another sort of, and then how how did it, the rise and fall of the neighborhood? Uh, what's that about? Well, my favorite account of that is that because there were so many non-breeders living in the area that the school districts were had really small classroom sizes. <laughs> straight, straight reproducers started to, and then eventually gay reproducers started to figure this out. And so it made for this huge housing boom here, which then led to... Uh, you know, your typical stages of gentrification where the, the old gay bar becomes a gelato shop. But, it, you know, at one point it was just packed with gay bars that you could just do a walking circuit of like 12 bars in one night if you wanted to. Um, I mean, other accounts of why that has gone away other than just routine garden variety gentrification is uh, dating apps. People order in, as it were, uh, assimilation. Uh, just, I mean, of course, the AIDS crisis put uh, a damper on a lot of things and put made people kind of go underground and cruise less. So there's really one gay bar left, Akbar, which is also somewhat mixed, uh, gay, lesbian, and straight. So that's holding down the fort. Uh, there's still a fair amount of residential. Um, gay life here but its retail presence is more or less gone and in its place we have a uh, plaque commemorating the black cat uh, outside of a restaurant that is called the black cat and has a picture of the riot but other than that it's not particularly queer and then of course the the mattachine stairs have also been commemorated next to where harry hayes house was where he formed the underground homophile group the first in the United States in the 1950s. Well, can you talk a little bit about, about Harry Hay? Because, um, I mean, again, he's also one of these figures who plays an important role, not just in, you know, establishing this first 
uh, group, which you know, not even really political in the sense that we mean modern in a modern sense, but just the very fact that they were drawing together and kind of forming a society was itself a politics. Um, but you know, later on, he becomes he's such a wild character, fascinating character, and he's you know instrumental in 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 sparking the radical fairies in the seventies, which grow out of this whole kind of feral pagan psychedelic side of of. Uh, of at least California gay culture that it's always fascinated me. Um, very interesting character. How does he kind of like, does he, is is he a, a central figure? I mean, not obviously in a very different life than, than Harvey Milk, but Harvey Milk is, is a central figure in sort of San Francisco gay self-narratizing. He sort of, he crystallizes um, aspirations and, and tragedies uh does does harry hay play that role is it i'm not even really sure exactly how he kind of defines himself or moves through the kind of space of los angeles yeah so he he starts as an actor uh a handsome young man and gets involved with the communist party so in the 40s and 50s which is to say that it's a deeply underground structure and so he used his experience in the party as a model for Mattachine. So it was this highly uh, secretive and sectarian organization in the beginning. And in fact, one of the original founders was a student at Occidental College. Um, and it grew, it became a little more above ground, and then Mattachine splits and basically tosses out Harry Hay because the uh, second wave of Mattachine is took the idea of being underground as synonymous with being closeted, with being assimilationist um, around the, you know, the time of Stonewall in New York, you have that version of the more conservative wing of Mattachine still active. So you'll see the name, but Harry Hay drops out and decides the organization has gone in the wrong direction. And then eventually does form the radical fairies, which with a group of other men who at that point have a, it's, I mean, it seems to start mostly in the Southwest. It's not, it's, wouldn't call it headquarters LA, but, um, you know, part of it is about, you know, roaming around the different sites of nature. So they wanted to have more expansive. Well, well talking around the, the, the feral roaming around side, one of the, the uh, exciting points on your, on your uh, website is the in progress Rough Riders, Leather Motorcycle Clubs, and the Defense of Queer Space? And there's not, you know, as as we've talked about, it's not as robust as it could be, and that's partly involving uh, students and the challenges of doing these kind of archives. But I just didn't really know very much about that, you know, like our our model of you know the California biker is the you know the Hell's Angel is this or or Marlon Brando or whatever, and they're you know they're pretty at least on the surface. Uh, uh, conventional machis, you know, macho characters. So, can you say a little bit about the, the the you know, like in a way, the origins of the leather scene, like what these these early biker clubs were about, and how they functioned as 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 uh, gay spaces, as forms of new identity creation, and it's just another one of these great subcultures that we can now look in the rearview mirror maybe we make a plaque somewhere but they're still so fun to talk about and i'd just love to know more yeah that i mean it's just amazing so um i'm teaching this class again this semester and we're about to go into the one national um gay and lesbian archive to 
start off by looking at the one processed collection that they have, which is from the Blue Max Bikers Club. And so th this is a bikers club like any other bikers club. This is, you know, Hollister. This is uh, Marlon Brando. And it's um, very much this story of men going overseas in World War II and getting to ride motorcycles and, you know, getting to wear these cool outfits and coming back and wanting to, you know, just ride. And then that also segues in a really interesting way with Mattachine, which is a homophile movement. So there, you know, in addition to Mattachine, there were these other homophile societies that were modeling themselves after fraternal organizations like the Masons. So you have these really funky homophile associations like the Anubis Club, which takes on all of this Egyptian, the Anubis Society, which takes on all this Egyptian um, iconography for really no particular reason. Um, but is structured like the Masons. So this idea of a kind of homosocial continuum between straight fraternal societies and gay fraternal societies and you know, gay male motorcycle clubs and straight male motorcycle clubs, which would seem like a, a point of friction. I mean, one amazing story, and at this point apocryphal, we can't find a site for it, um, is that the Satyrs Club, which was founded in 1954 and is the oldest extant gay organization in the United States. If you can wrap your head around that, um, that they were on a ride somewhere and stopped at some roadhouse and the Hell's Angels were there. And that seems like a formula for trouble, but you know, they admired each other's bikes and then did some wheelies in the parking lot. And then the head of the Hell's Angels gave the head of the Satyrs a card that basically would guarantee that they wouldn't get in trouble with any of the other clubs that if anybody ever fucked with the satyrs they'd just you know drop the name the head of the hell's angels and they'd be fine and it's just so hard to wrap our heads around that but these these clubs were amazing i mean the, uh, that that's great that's one of those like apocryphal stories that it's so good it let's just say it's true <laughs> yeah, yeah. wait so, wait but i, I want to go back just for a second to the anubis society anubis society because yeah. The only thing that I'm thinking is like, well, I know that Harry Hay played organ for the Agape Lodge in the in the early 40s. In so this is the the OTO, you know, the one the one that Jack Parsons goes to, and he sometimes played organ. So there's all that you know. There's Egyptian symbolism to some degree there, and certainly in the Golden Dawn, Crowley's you know other order or the order that he came from. So I'm wondering if some of that. Egyptian, even if it was done in sort of just a, a like a playful stylistic way, as opposed to an actually esoteric way, were there part of it sort of referred to, yeah, to, to esotericism as another space where there was room for a kind of queer counter history or a queer imaginary, um, just because it was, again, it was so contrary, the kind of dominant Christian narrative of what religion in, in America was was about, or or was it even more just sort of goofy and, and playful than that? I mean, I think it was about as seriously a cult as like the Masons or the Shriners. Okay. Uh, I think it really was a bunch of goofy shit, you know? I mean, just to, to give you just a sense of the goof before we get back to um, the occult and these sort of other ways of thinking about queerness outside of heteronormative structures, the, the Blue Max Club is this amazing club that is based on um, 
the life of Kaiser Wilhelm II and um, Baron von Richtungen, is that how you say it? Uh, AKA the Red Baron, both of who are rumored to um, be gay or to have male lovers. And so this motorcycle club dresses up, I mean, when, before their, their collection was processed, I looked into their unprocessed collection and I found myself looking at a box full of unlabeled photographs and a spiked Kaiser helmet. And so they would dress, and I didn't know what to do with it. And thank God a professional archivist went through this. So they have these like tufted helmets and they wear all of this World War I regalia and ride around. And then they, you know, um, they celebrate the Kaiser's birthday every year. There's another motorcycle club called the Oedipus Club. Um, where their their head is called Rex, and they do all this Grecian stuff. So I mean, part of it is just kind of a giant organized sort of guy drag party, you know, in some sense. But I, I do think that this concept of analogies to other worlds is crucial. I, I mean, Jim Kepner, for example, who was one of the founders of the One Foundation and then the establisher of the One Archive, was a huge science fiction fan. Um, and uh, Edith Ede, whose moniker was Lisa, Lisa Ben, an anagram for lesbian, who um, published the first lesbian Z magazine, uh, vice versa, also a sci-fi fan. And they both analogized organizing gay people together on the model of science fiction fan clubs. So conventions, um, the sci-fi conventions that they would go to, pen pal situations, zines, right? This was the very foundation of it. So th these analogies, less of what we think of now when we think of like intersectional identities or co analogies, what's known as the like race argument around gay rights, um, are I think much more interesting when you take them to these roots of why it would even occur to people to organize gay people into groups other than the person that you want to date or your your small friendship circle or the public space aspect of a pickup bar, right? To, to think of this as, well, straight people have motorcycle clubs. Why don't we have a motorcycle club? We, you know, there's these like masons. Let's get some, you know, groovy Egyptian um, stuff going and see if we can make a fun club, you know? So, and I do think that Harry Hay probably transported some of that occult stuff to the radical fairies um, who are, quite secretive. That's a subculture we've not been able to really crack yet. They don't, um, they're very much a, a separatist organization. And uh, so that's, that's the kind of archival cherry. Yeah. And very, very anarchic as well. So, so like Willie will, willfully alluding your, your uh, questions. I spent one time in the, in the uh, radical fairy camp at rainbow gathering in 1991 where i was a journalist so i felt obliged to go to all, as many different places as i could and i felt a little out of place like a little i was just kind of younger hippie dude i hadn't really had that much experience in the world that relatively so and and uh it was super intense <laughs> those guys were really full-on and uh and definitely very anarchic and very, very uh, elusive. But one of the things you said about science fiction fandom is really fascinating to me because that is the root in some ways of like what we mean by counterculture and not just in terms of what you were describing, which, to which makes sense once you finally think about it. You go, oh, of course that makes sense. But it's also true that like if you trace rock 
uh, early rock culture, like late 60s, especially writing, rock writing, the kind of like the sass and the kind of like street gutter talk and all the kind of meanings that grow up around rock music and you trace where those guys come from and they all come from science fiction fandom. So they're all making zines in the early 60s. And then you go back and you realize that 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 science fiction fans, you know, in a way it's the first kind of like internet mailing list kind of vibe and and you know, way back to the amateur press societies and how it comes out of those amateur press societies. But they were also experimenting with with you know, non-normative sexuality, you know, in, you know, again, back in the 30s and 40s, there were open marriages and da 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 polyamory, and presumably a greater tolerance, at least among some people, um, for you know all variety of, of gender and desire expression. So there's something really interesting about that, and and about the way that subcultures, not exclude, not always, but it seems like they were they 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 do well with an imaginary. You know, they do well with a a fantasy that they that that can be both asserted and then kind of played with, and that that logic seems so uh, you know kind of appropriate at least for a certain period of queer life in America where it's like it's want it wants to be out but it can't be totally out so it has to be kind of playful sort of needs to be a you know somewhere you're not going to notice it but it also needs some glue to be more than a pickup scene or your your lover if it's going to have that larger that larger collective dimension there there's usually some kind of fantasy or fiction or imaginary or history or some kind of stuff that 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 adheres to it absolutely and i think that was especially true so it's not just it's an imaginary I think, and it's sometimes, and it's also about uh, media, right? About the the fanzine, about the the pen pal, about. I mean, I think that we, in terms of having an imaginary and then having a, a lack of imagination, right? That looking at sort of understandings of culture around public and private, it, it, that doesn't make sense when you're talking about a gay motorcycle club, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like the public and the private kind of fall apart there, right? When you're going on road trips to camp out in Badger Flats, and then you also have, you know, they're meeting at people's houses, and you're going to these biker bars that are also containing other subcultures within them. So yeah, I think that uh, part of I mean, it's funny the effect that this class has on my students because they often leave quite sad and um, about the lack of imagination that their contemporary queer lives offer them. That this idea of a kind of occult in the broadest sense of the word occult, right? This is, this is the cost of assimilation, right? That there are these pleasures of the underground, even if it's the condition of your broader oppression in some other way. But it's a, it, that, that crucible of surveillance um, often makes for massive creativity uh, as opposed to the flattening aspects of rights-based discourse or you know, massively linked common culture now in the era of the internet. Yeah, I mean, this gets into something, I mean, we, we've talked about this before, and one of the, the comments you made that really stayed with me is, is how that that in a way even the very concept of subculture is kind of not so uh, useful necessarily these days at least for a lot of the zones where we might used where we used to apply it so here's a great example what we've just been talking about 
subcultures. There's other subcultures that that you're you, you've dealt with on the website and elsewhere, you know, in other places like uh, voguing or something, or where there's these sort of intense other worlds that are kind of hidden, kind of available, still porous in some way, but have their own signs and symbols and forms of, of initiation, of transmission, of, of narratizing. And in a way, it's like it's hard to feel that these days because they're they're so public and they get so mediated and it gets part of this broader broader conversation that it it doesn't even seem like a useful theoretical tool anymore. It's like we've shifted from subculture to identity. Yeah, I think so. I mean, going back to, you know, the classic Dick Hebdige um, subculture theory of style, you know, it's kind of, you know, and having punk be his main aspect of it. I mean, the, the, the concept of subculture was somewhat corrupt in its inception. That's Hebdige's point, right? That this is, <laughs> punk was uh, a kind of publicity stunt in a sense, right? Though it also took on this organic form and then as soon as it happened, it was over. So, but it, we're at an even heightened level about that now where it doesn't even, this is, a, my students don't understand the concept of selling out. Like that's just not an operative idea for them, you know? All they wanna do is buy in, right? They wanna be Instagram stars. They wanna have this, uh, highly individualistic um, and trend-based aspects. So it's it's trends versus subculture is part of it, and things disappear so quickly. So I think that part of, for example, like when we so one of our complete chapters is on the South LA houseball voguing uh, competition scene, and um, you know part of what's astounding about that scene is a its longevity and B, it's organization, that you have to belong to a house, right? That you have a role as a mother, as a father, as a child of the house, right? You're in, you know, it, you, you, there's an initiation. It, it's so old school in some sense. And I'm wondering if, and that's culminated in, uh, you know, last year's Ryan Murphy show, Pose, about the sort of so-called classical era of um, house ball scene in New York around the time of uh, AIDS and is, you know, based off of uh, the Livingston documentary, Paris is Burning. So why, why is this fascinating to this generation, right? I think that this, you know, I mean, I don't want to make such a kind of nostalgic argument of like, you know, the sociological study bowling alone, right? But this, uh, I mean, I think we can credit queer culture with maintaining some of these older, you know, uh, up through the late 20th century forms of organized communalism on the one hand, and then subcultural style that, uh, that can survive popularization. That's, I think that's very well said. You know, we're, we're talking on this topic of uh, subcultures and the law, you know, the changing underground, the kind of loss of a, of a sort of underground position. Or And, and this reminds me of, of another comment that uh, the fellow who left the voicemail <laughs> at PRN made, and it's so perfect. I just have to play it right now. So one last thing is I know that Eric Davis is worried that there's no underground. And that's just I think because he's old. So it's probably true. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm definitely not, not, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm now devoted to no longer believing that the underground is over. It's just that it's hard to pull off. Let's put it that way. And I actually, just to, to, before we go on, I, I have to say that I've, you know, 
inevitably you think in terms of generations you know it's like my generation is this characteristic and that you know it's we're different the kids today are different and a lot of times we think about it in terms of technology oh they're digital natives they grew up they don't remember a time when there wasn't a cell phone blah 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 that's the standard way of thinking about it and then there's more you know nuanced accounts of of how they relate with uh, identity and politics and things like that but to me like in terms of my particular ethical and aesthetic orientation to the world uh my my person my personal personality um the thing that is the most jarring the most significant the most of a crack is precisely that i can i will never be able to leave the model of selling out and that that's a possibility that there's some kind of authenticity or some kind of tribal ethic or some kind of commitment to some external thing however much i can critique it in the rearview mirror or see that it's just a symptom of the same problem or something like that there's still as a value i, I just can't let it go and it, it it informs my decisions oh that's too cheesy that's selling out that's whatever and it, it doesn't seem to really be a value anymore or if it is a value it's so reformulated that i can't even perceive it anymore um it's such as kind of a side note but it just seems that's a really, really significant shift. And it does make a difference in terms of what a subculture is because the subculture is kind of like there is a set of values. If you're taking it seriously as well as playfully, there's a set of values there that you you can break. And if you get break, you might get ostracized or people don't want to talk to you anymore. You're, you're, you feel guilty or you feel like you've made a shift or you no longer have access to certain things. And uh, it just that just seems to be different, and that's part of the reason that difference is part of the reason that subcultures don't make as much sense as as even as a category. I think uh, these days. Yeah, I mean that kind of um, aspect of uh, belonging and a kind of code, an imaginary, an imagination, as you say, is so individualistic now and you're going to do that in a tweet you're going to do that on social media right that to, to be it's just call out culture as opposed to a concept of selling having something that you could sell out of or buy into right is that that it's porous and i suppose that's good in some ways but in other ways it's so ephemeral and you just have a circular firing squad at the end of the day that's going at the speed of the internet. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. I have no problem with being nostalgic for it. Um, and in some ways I put some of that energy into archiving it. Right. Yeah. And, and let's say we got it, you know, about 15 minutes left and I'd love to talk about archiving. I mean, I, I, I love archiving. I'm not very f uh, familiar with it. I've only had access a couple times to some, some raw, some unprocessed archives, which is really exciting and overwhelming, and and I've I've managed I've had fun in a few um, archives, and uh, just I'm really curious. I think of all the things we talked about when we were talking about you doing the project with your students was just your impressions of them as they were sort of discovering just what an archive is, especially an unprocessed archive, just immense amount of stuff, print stuff, analog stuff, crumbling stuff. And that in that, there are these forms of meaning, of community, of history, of, 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 you know, individual personalities woven together, all of this. It's so rich. And yet you're also kind of dealing with just a big bunch of stuff. 
<laughs> and, yeah, and often really boring. I mean, I myself, in preparation for bringing my students to the one archive, was going through, you know, like three years of bylaws and meeting minutes for a motorcycle club. And that's just really dull. But if you're patient with it, which is not exactly a virtue of the present, um, you know, this story emerges, like something happened. What is this event that they're referring to about punishing, about writing letters of apology? And it turns out that like someone who is like in another motorcycle club had broken down on the side of the road and they, Blue Max group didn't help him um, because they don't, didn't, they were so anal about breaking their special formation, right? Um, that they were driving in, riding in in that moment. And this resulted in all of these clubs coming together at Badger Flats, which is up in San Gregorio and getting in a fist fight. So, you know, it's like, that's, that's sitting there in these, in these meeting minutes, right? And so the, the patience of that is, I think of virtue, I think that part of it is that this generation, you know, is, they brought back vinyl, right? So there's this kind of oversaturation of the digital that is making, reinvesting this kind of, you know, aura, thinking about like Vulture Benjamin's idea of the aura of the original in the age of mechanical reproduction, that they're really turned on. I thought that they were gonna go nuts for this, you know, scale or this multimedia uh, book and exhibit exhibit format that we were putting it on and that they would really take to that, but they, they really hated it. They just wanted to get back and touch the stuff. You know, they were just kind of endlessly fascinated by it and certainly overwhelmed. Um, I, but I, I think that it, I'm, I, I was so product oriented the first time I did this class and tried to build this website. Um, and I've kind of given up on that. I just really want it to be experiential and a process oriented, for, you know, aspect for them to touch as many archives in various states of collection and processing as I possibly can. Well, um, it's, all, it's also such a key time in archiving because, you know, not just uh, these queer subcultures, but but counter all manner of countercultures. A lot of those, you know, those folks are dead and dying. You know, especially from the really, you know, the the, the crazy crazy eras of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the 80s, whatever. And um and there, and yet there's so much media. I mean, it, there's so much stuff. There's it's a, it's amazing how much you know. If people were keeping stuff, there's flyers, there's seven inches, there's zines, there's posters. I mean, there was such such a lot of print going on, as well as all the different kinds of recorded media. So in a way, it's a it's a treasure trove, and at the same time, it's often in very kind of obscure situations. And and do you do you ever do you seek out like fresh unprocessed archives and try to get your students involved with those or they tend to be ones that are already kind of um, being worked? Yeah, well, 15 weeks with undergraduates is limiting when it comes <laughs> to doing real archival processing. But when we did the... Um, so our, our contact with the, the house ball scene in South LA is with this nonprofit organization called Reach LA, which is 25 years old. Um, and they are just, you know, a very busy, underfunded nonprofit doing HIV AIDS awareness and arts um, training, even like they train people how to vogue, right, um, in downtown LA. And, they, you know, they're so busy, but they've accrued 25 years worth of stuff that's just stuffed into this room that's called a library and a storage 
room, which really doesn't look any different from the library. And so we got to go to their headquarters and just go through their stuff. So, you know, my students are holding up these super beta cassettes that are bigger than their laptops and being like, what the fuck is this, right? They're playing these old videos from like the early 90s. They're looking at a wall that's just a, a, you know, like six feet of stacked, unused, completely out of date condoms where the organization is like, we don't know what to do with this. Do we just throw it out? Or is there something of archival value or even museum quality value of just looking at this stack of unused condoms, right? What does that signify? Is that success? Is that failure? Is that nostalgia? You know, what what is that there? So yeah, we've been able to get into some really uh, intense, just, I mean, we're not calling them archives, they're collections and they're not even collections, they're piles, right? I mean, <laughs> one of the big conceptual questions, what's the difference between a hoarder and an archivist, right? So. Um, so yeah, we have had a chance to do that, but a lot of that work was initiated during the class. And then, you know, we had a student who became the archival intern there and, you know, Oxy compensated them for basically an unpaid internship and then they were hired there. So that ended up being like a three year project to have what, what we were able to digitize or document on the website as it is right now. So, you know, that, that's an exciting part and, it, and it's overwhelming. Like you don't even know how to, you know, sometimes you don't even know what an object is, much less when it's from, who made it, right? Who collected it? Who, how did it get there, right? So that, that strangeness is I'm much more open to that now. I'm not there to solve the problem as much as maybe I was as a younger oh yeah no i see what you mean i mean it's extremely it's very enigmatic and in a in a bit disturbing not in like a creepy way but just like that the the sense of not being able to place something or yeah. or that it simultaneously occupies the space of utter trash something that should be forgotten something that should be noted but forgotten <laughs> you know and going up the scale to should be framed or you know you know scanned immediately and and placed in you know whatever there it's and, and then just all the questions of where it came from and where's it going and it's really really remarkable how uh how many objects from the past hold that enigmatic character almost as if they're saying well do you want to remember me i mean do you want to tell a story that involves me and if not, that's fine. But like, it's sort of your choice. And you're like, I, I don't know who else would want, you know, and then and then the whole problem of like, you're creating an archive, you know, ultimately down the road, you're creating an archive for other people to ask questions that you can't imagine. So then right. it becomes like, well, everything's like that. The whole history of the human race is like that. So it, it gets like weird, very vertiginous in a way that I never realized until I actually got my hands on a pile where we were looking for cool stuff and found some really cool stuff, some expected, some unexpected, amidst a lot of trash. Uh, and there, there's something, if you're, if you're a history fan, if you're a collector, if you like this kind of stuff, it, it's, it's really, I think, really important to tr you know, get your hands dirty a couple times because it just you learn something about history and time and memory and objects that's, that seems really key. Yeah, archive fever, it's a real thing. <laughs> in the both the, the positive and negative senses of fever there so. well do, one question do you think you know so do, do you think that there's a uh, last time we we talked you, you we drew a distinction between 
like there's like weaponized nostalgia and weaponized amnesia and that we're kind of like we have to beware of both of those that a way that nostalgia can kind of keep us stuck and and sort of be used as a way to contain uh political or 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 imaginative possibilities a sort of melancholy of the you know dwelling on the past and then at the same time i think it's very clear to look at contemporary environment it's so full of information there's so much manipulation there's so much attention on the now and the future on the the young on the the technological that it feels like far more might potentially be more or less forgotten it's going to be somewhere in some database probably for a while but more or less forgotten as a kind of touchstone does do, do you i mean how do you wrestle with that kind of um issue when you're when you're teaching people about history and and about uh cultural memory yeah well i think that i mean as a pedagogue as a teacher i think that i have to deploy weaponized nostalgia <laughs> or else the question is who cares right so once i get to that point though i mean as i said like um a lot of the young gay men in my class by the end of it were angry right and we had this um guest speaker from UCLA who's working on this sort of stuff uh, come in and talk about this and what does it mean to be nostalgic for something that you didn't even experience? I think there is such a thing and that's what my students were experiencing and this this young scholar who is about 30 and also you know sort of missed the heyday of uh, gay life post Stonewall was like yeah but there's a great chance that you'd be dead now if you had lived through that yeah. AIDS, you know and this aids being you know this this vortex this like hole in the middle of it so that it's it prevents in some ways uh us from getting too excited about wow i really missed the 70s <laughs> you know because <laughs> then comes the 80s and the 90s and um so it's it's very i think it's very bittersweet and i think that aids really does have this commanding aspect on all queer historiography in a sense no matter how far back you go right because it really is um about you know the coming out of the homophile movement about understanding not just a a biopolitical aspect of the homosexual as species right as michelle foucault famously said but as demographic as culture in this sense that um it as soon as it right, it's you know, it's like there's this one decade of freedom and then there's apocalypse. And that this is still our recent history and it's not something that my students remember. They know so precious little about HIV AIDS and what happened. That's amazing. The- I, I would have thought that would be like, you know, the Holocaust for a Jew. Like you would just that would just be still like a dominant story. But that's sort of what it indicates to me again, like I just it's so hard partly just this is probably always the case to know how another generation is remembering history in in, in a general sense. Um, but that also, is that something about the cost? Of, like it's the cost of assimilation isn't just that you no longer have access to these subcultural pockets and pleasures, but that you almost have to sacrifice some of your history to really make that assimilation. And the, the analogy that comes to my mind is, is psychedelics right now in, you know, as it gets mainstreamed, as it gets medicalized, as it gets embraced as a, as a medicine, it requires a forgetting 
of the feral, crazy, anarchic, dangerous, sometimes very damaging kind of sets of associations. It kind of needs to be, and whitewash isn't quite the right word, but it, it's almost like to, you have to, to really assimilate, you kind of have to leave some of that cultural memory behind. Does, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's becoming this kind of negative archive of the bad high, right? <laughs> and I mean, you see this especially with pot, you know, with the legalization of marijuana, it's the, the gucification of it, you know, it's like, there's none of the like, fear of the sketchy dealer. There's no more of the, you know, I can't feel my hands, what's fucking happening? You know? <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and there's also this like, okay, well, you know, I mean, Leo Bersani of Queer Theorists makes this point and about like all of these, you know, queer historians in the 90s who were extolling the, the, the democratic space of the bathhouse. And he says, you know, like, if you've ever been rejected in a bathhouse, you will know <laughs> what it's like to be in a permanent eighth grade and naked. <laughs> Literally. Oh. Naked. <laughs> wow, that came through like a... Like a stab to the heart. <laughs> oh God! Can you imagine? Jeez. So yeah. So I mean, there is there is a danger in this in this kind of nostalgia, and I think that there there is an ugly side. So it's not just you know the the ignorance of this generation of younger people not knowing about HIV/AIDS, except as a global phenomenon. There's also um, a really deeply internalized sense of individual and group shame from the generation that went through it, right? It's, and survivor's guilt and all of this negative affect around it that is having a historiographic effect on how we think about it, right? There, in some sense, there hasn't been nearly enough work done on this <laughs> epochal moment. You yeah. know? Well, great. You know, we're going to have to wind up there. We, I'm sure you keep going, but uh, Heather, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Great. Heather Lukes. Check her out, the uh, website, Queer, The Grit and Glamour of Queer LA Subculture. And uh, until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs>